Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. My guest for this episode is Alec Ross. Alec is an American technology policy expert who was senior advisor to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton during her term um, as such. After leaving the Department of State in 2013, he joined the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University as senior fellow. He is the author of New York Times bestseller, The Industries of the Future, and most recently, The Raging Twenties, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for the Future, which is the subject of this interview. He is um, also a distinguished visiting fellow at Johns Hopkins University and a distinguished visiting professor at the University of Bologna Business School and is a board partner at Amplo a global venture capital firm. We cover a fair amount in this interview. I start with Alec's recent book, but we also cover a lot of what's been going on with contemporary American politics. Was class or culture more of a motivating factor for Donald Trump's voters? And finally, the future ideological direction of the Democratic Party. Are the Democrats becoming more and more influenced by something approximating a neo-Republican theory of freedom, a la Quentin Skinner or Philip Pettit? As you'll hear, Alex someone who really has been in the room with a lot of the big political decisions of our age and knows a lot of the key actors making those decisions. So it was really, really great to exchange perspectives with someone who has such first-hand knowledge of the American political process. As always, if you do enjoy the show, please consider sponsoring. I don't do any commercial advertisements or have any sponsors, so all of the costs associated with this are covered by listeners through the Patreon. So if you enjoy episodes like these, consider chipping in a couple of bucks, and that's certainly very appreciated. My book is almost out, What is Freedom? That'll be out middle of November, so about two more weeks. So please do pre-order. You can do that through Amazon, OUP, your preferred bookseller, whatever you want, available paperback and hardback. So if you enjoy the podcast, you might also like the book that has emerged from it. Um, Apart from that, let's go straight to it. I was very grateful to get Alec on for an hour of his time, and I hope you enjoy the interview. I am joined today by Alec Ross. Alec, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm pleased to I'm pleased to be a part of this. Thank you for having me, Toby. Um, so just to get started, um, for people who might not have heard of you, how do you self-describe your career, what you've done, and what you're doing and writing about now? Sure. So I live and work at the intersection of geopolitics, academia, and entrepreneurship. I, I live a sort of strange... I have a strange, almost 
uh, portfolio lifestyle where I teach at uh, the University of Bologna, the world's oldest university. But I also have a venture capital fund through whom I invest and I write books and occasionally get involved in some of what's happening in politically in, in terms of our governance. Okay. And you've just written um, The Raging Twenties, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future. One thing I always ask people who have a book out is, and this is just a nerd question from me, what was the process of writing this book? Like, how long did it take? What were you actually doing as you put it together? What did this look like to produce a product? Sure. So the the previous book I wrote was five years ago. So I'm not one of those people who produces a book a year. Mm. Um, for me, it's a longer process. And the the actual process of the the writing itself was not terribly long this time. But there were there were maybe two to three years of cogitation and research, mm. thinking about things even informally, not in an overly structured way, and not thinking all of this is to to the intended end of writing a book. Uh, but at some point, things click enough that you begin to sketch out ideas. Mm. Um, and then the the book writing process itself took maybe a year and a half um, from start to finish. So it was a fairly compact process, made more compact, I think, by the pandemic, because I was able to, first of all, people were much more accessible than they normally were. You know, people, you know, for interviews, I did more than 100 interviews for the book. Mm. And, you know, bluntly with people were not in the office or, you know, circulating the globe at 38,000 feet as often as normal. So people were more accessible. And bluntly, I had more time to write because mm. I myself was not among those people circulating the globe or going into an office. So it was a fairly compact process. With me. I think a lot of people do a writing process where they think I want to write about X topic. And then they've got to run this huge process of, like, researching it, mapping out their arguments, so on and so forth. I just sort of read and listen to a lot of stuff that interests me, and then eventually I find I have an argument I want to make, and then I start the writing process. I don't go until I sort of have my structure in mind, and I've got a, a bunch floating around in my head, most of which, thankfully for everyone out there, never sort of make the cut. Do you do you run a similar process to that, it sounds like? Yes, because I don't, even though I self-identify as an author, I don't have to make my living as an author. So I'm not sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, if, you know, a few more years pass, then, you know, it'll affect my lifestyle or well-being or, you know, I won't get tenure at a university. I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a, position of sort of comparative privilege just from a book production standpoint. Mm. So I'm not going to force the writing process. So it is going to be, it's, it's probably too much to call it serendipity, but there is a process after two or three or four years of ingesting information, of ingesting content that, you know, you point, you, you arrive at the point of having your own synthesis and your own point of view. And, and at least for me, what's important is that Two things. One, it be distinct. It mm. be different than anything else that's out there. Like, I don't think anybody who's read the Raging 2020s has said, oh, yeah, well, it's sort of like X and mm. then fill in the blank. And then the second thing is that it be interdisciplinary. So mm. I feel like so much of what is written are within this sort of tight academic are within tight and narrow academic verticals. 
And to the extent that I add value with my writing, with my thinking, I think it's being a little bit more interdisciplinary and Mm -hmm. drawing from different domains and then integrating them because I think life is interdisciplinary. And so that that's an important component of this for me. Cool. So what's the thesis or theses? I'm always a bit confused as what the plural is with that one, but what's, what is your principal argument in this book? My principal argument is that it's time to rewrite our social contract. I mean, look, the social contract is, a living document. There isn't, there isn't a bound copy of it anywhere that says, ah, oh, yes, here was the early industrial age social contract. Here was the late agricultural age social. That's not the way it works. Mm. Having said that, there are periods where it's increasingly important to massively reorient the relationship between state capital and labor. Mm. And so my thesis here is, is twofold. One, that we've arrived at that moment. And that, too, unlike in the past, um, you know, look, I don't know that I would self-define as a social contract theorist, but if you think about Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and others, they really define, and basically everybody else who writes about the social contract, Mm. they write principally in terms of the governing and the governed, Mm. state and labor, um, citizens and government. And what I believe is that in the 2020s, for all intents and purposes, we are more governed by companies than we are by governments. And so to the extent that there is something else that's quite distinct here, it's when I write about the social contract, there's, an, there's a substantial new signatory in this, which is, which is capital, which are multinational firms, global firms, which are no longer subsidiary to the state, which they were decades prior. And so I think any reinvestigation of the question of the social contract has to realistically account for very large multinational firms i'm trying to think you've this is just off the cuff i'm trying to think if there's anything i don't think there's any big figures in the canon who include firms as parties in the social contract i don't think they don't no they don't lock and hobbs you're probably a bit early for that you're sort of still you're not quite in the modern economic age but it's not in rules I'm, I'm, okay. I'm struggling to think of a modern theorist who it would be. I'm sure someone knows one. But... I'm sure there's, there's someone out there, but the, the modern theorists uh, really, the supposition is that corporations are subsidiary to the state. Hmm. And in fact, you know, even the name corporation, you know, they, they, are, they are given their form through, through state sanction. Hmm. But what I would argue is that we are in a very different situation now than we were even during the Cold War. And I write about this very, fairly substantially um, in the raging 2020s, where during the Cold War, uh, in many respects, the, there was a sort of corporate patriotism, whether it was American-sponsored democratic capitalism, whether it was Soviet-sponsored communism, whatever it was— the role of the capital tended to work hand in glove with state. And, and it is my belief that it's really been since the early 1990s that there's been a decoupling of large multinationals from, from the sanctioning of their nation state. Um, and, you know, look, there have always been exceptions to this, but I would just say as a movement um, and as a percentage of global economic activity, and with the kind of monstrous multinationals we have, which, yes, there have been multi- monstrous multinationals in the past, 
but they've also been able to be brought to heel by state power. And maybe they can in the present context, but they haven't yet been. There's also been analogous to that story and probably causally interlinked with it, a real change in political rhetoric, both from the left and the right, because whatever, you know, the, the, the state, the, the corporation being a legal construction of the state, I mean, that hasn't changed. But the way politicians talk about this, this has. Even, I mean, the, the American right's always been pretty pro-corporate, but there used to be a justification of this in terms of the public good, you know, so-called trickle-down economics, you cut taxes, everyone will benefit. That's actually kind of fallen away for a just much more direct and deferential praise of quote-unquote job creators and, we, you know, billionaires of our sort of saviors and whatever. And then on the left, since what, the Clinton-Blair sort of era, you've increasingly had the language of public-private partnership, which implies the state and corporations on sort of equal footing, if if anything, with the state as something of a junior partner. Um, so the whole language of how we describe corporations isn't that of a construct that we use anymore, I don't think, right? No, it's it's true. And if you actually listen to the rhetoric of somebody who you would historically associate with the right, like like Ronald Reagan, mm -hmm. um, or let's even bring in John Major for a minute. Mm -hmm. um, if you listen to their rhetoric today, or if you write what they wrote, if you if you read what they said without an identifier, you would think oftentimes that it is the contemporary center left, mm. which is kind of hilarious to think of in retrospect, because they did use the kind of language that you talked about. You know, the reason why you cut taxes or the, the reason why you confer more power into the realm of private capital mm. is ultimately for the benefit of society. Today, um, there's almost no, on the right at least, in the American right, I'll be more specific. In the American right, there's almost no theory of the case. There's no even attempt to try to co-join the benefit of the well-being of these big corporations and a broader societal benefit. It's mm -hmm. just viewed as doctrinal that you know, the more power you give to corporations at the expense of the state is ultimately a good because there's so much antipathy for the state. Someone asked me this a while ago. I forget the exact context of the conversation, but we were talking about the Biden um, Build Back Better or infrastructure plan. And they sort of asked, how, how are they paying for it? And I said, it's sort of up in the air, but the thesis would be taxes on corporations and the very wealthy, some, something to that effect. And they asked me, what's the counter argument? Like, what are Republicans saying against that? And my answer was, honestly, not very much. They're decrying it as socialism, which they always do. Um, but honestly, that's just not where their focus is anymore. The main things they've been talking about are what, cancel culture and critical race theory, there's not, I mean, I'm sure there's right-wing economists you can point me to, but in terms of the arguments that the right half of that, the spectrum is making, there just sort of isn't an argument, or if there is, I'm no. missing it, that's being no, made in terms of public good. No, the, so the overwhelming majority 
uh, of the political right in the Republican Congress. In this respect, it's it's sponsored by Joe Biden. Mm. Ipso facto, it's bad. Yeah. Um, and that's really the end of it. Mm. Some people, some of them who do have triple-digit IQs, who do have you know, just who are incapable of not having a theory of the case. Um, you know, I'm thinking about people like J.D. Vance and some others mm -hmm. simply say it's about cost and suddenly mm -hmm. we can't afford it. Um, and, you know, the sort of argument ends there. Um, and why would we want to have government building things when, in their rhetoric, Government is terrible at building things. Mm -hmm. um, so they're, they're, they're not the argument for or against Biden's infrastructure package is really not rooted in much of a sort of intellectual pushback. Mm -hmm. There is on some of the social welfare bills that he's putting in place mm -hmm. um, where they, you know, they, they call it state interference or other such things. But for the most part, it's much more tribal. It's much more Hutu versus Tutsi. It's much more, if you're for it, I'm against it. I mean, if you put a resolution in front of the United States Senate that said, be it resolved, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, it would end up a 50-50 vote, mm -hmm. um, just because that is the nature of politics in America right now. And, you know, the it's created a broader problem, which is, you know, what... Frank Fukuyama called uh, vitocracy, where there it, it, it's a self-fulfilled prophecy when you don't have a governing consensus. This then leads to something that political scientist Stephen Tillis called kludgeocracy, um, which is sort of the compounding complexity of getting anything done in government. And so you get this sort of spiraling of uh, the, this spiraling effect where governing becomes increasingly difficult. Um, and that in turn strengthens the argument or even the non-argument of the right. Hmm. Do you think, so your book kind of ends with a choice, right? You write, let me find your quote, but you write in the conclusion, if nothing changes, rage will be the defining quality of the 2020s. Um, but you write... And tell me if you disagree with this characterization, almost as if we're at an inflection point where we can start doing things right, or we can continue on the current path and certain negative outcomes that you point out will materialise. It sort of felt, for many people, I think, that we've been at that inflection point for quite some time, and because of the the mechanics, processes that you describe, political culture of American governance right now, we never quite really drive off on one side of the road or the other. We just sort of keep ineptly plodding along, just like the functioning of the American Congress right now seems to be um, one self-imposed debt crisis or deadline or government shutdown after the other, the can just keeps getting kicked down. And I mean, even when Biden started, there's been a lot of talk about a new FDR, a new sort of whatever your social democratic vision is, or of a complete descent into political right-wing authoritarianism. 
both of those are on the table, but neither have happened yet. Is it so? The challenge, I guess, that you could put is: Do we keep visualizing these split paths, but the American government is actually structurally incapable of doing anything so decisive as that? And the reality is, we'll keep plodding along as we have been. That's a bit of a long challenge, but there you go. No. I, so first of all, I don't think there's an inevitable outcome here. Um, I do believe that whether the future looks more like Mad Max or mm. more like Star Trek is entirely a choice. And it's and and citizens have agency. Um, there is agency here. Um, you've brought up uh, Franklin Roosevelt a couple of times. I mean, one thing I would point to, the, these are very si- different circumstances, but when we've gotten to this point in the when we've gone to, gotten to this point in the past, not just in the United States but elsewhere, there have been times where dramatic change has taken place, but it doesn't happen overnight. So if we think, for example, like the name of this book is The Raging 2020s. If we think back to the Roaring 20s, the 1920s, we know that that decade concluded with economic collapse. And, you know, there actually were dramatic changes that took place. In the United States, there was a pivot uh, into an entirely different model of governance with the New Deal. In Italy and in Germany, they tilted in entirely different directions. Mm. Italy, t- um, you know, Benito Mussolini was democratically elected um, and fascism took root. Adolf Hitler, um, the Nazis were democratically elected uh, in that first election. And so states and their citizens did make dramatic choices um, that radically reoriented the way that their countries worked. If we go back further, uh, you know, the context of your question, when you said it feels like we've been in this for a while and we've been in this stage of transition for a while, it made me think of Engels' pause, you know, mm-hmm. this period from roughly, you know, the very end of the 18th century, 1790s to about 18, into the 1840s, mm-hmm. where there was the, there were these, and, and driven by technology, dramatic changes in the means of production where the base of much of uh, much of the European economy went from being dominantly agricultural to being industrial. Mm-hmm. The thing is, though, um, those 40-plus years were the industrialization of the Charles Dickens novels and mm-hmm. of 11-year-olds lo- losing their hands in the, in the factories. And what then happened? Well, there were ideological movements like Marxism. The Communist Manifesto was written in 1848. There was then the largest wave of revolutions in Europe's history, but ultimately, what what sustained industrialization was a sort of rewriting of the social contract, but it didn't happen overnight. It happened over a period of decades. The, going back to that factory where the 11-year-old lost his hand, there were things that said, okay, well, yes, you can work in our factory, but we're going to have these things called child labor laws, where you have to be 16 years old before coming to work here. Innovations like a pension scheme. Yes, you can work in the factory, and after 30 years of working in the factory, you're going to get this thing called a pension. Mm. Uh, Free publicly available education, where you're essentially sharing the spoils of industrialization, and it doesn't matter what your postal code is or what your last name is, you have access to free public education until you're about 18 years old. All of these things, along with the concept of a weekend, the 40-hour work week, a minimum wage, all of these basically established 
relative equilibrium in the relationship between state capital and labor and made industrialization work. Now that we're transitioning from a dominantly industrial-based economy into one that's increasingly technology-rich and knowledge-based, I feel like we're in a sort of new Engels pause. Hmm. And the prior Engels pause lasted 40-some years. You could make the argument that we're now in the second decade of this one. You know, um, while the, the, what, what enabled this was longer in the making. If you go back to the economic crisis of 2007, 2008, I think you could make a good argument that it sort of really began in earnest then. Um, and so we're waiting. And that's why when I, when I entitled the book The Raging 2020s, I did bound it in terms of a decade, because mm. I do believe there's a window of opportunity to make changes, but the window will close. And I don't believe that in eight, nine, 10 years from now, if, if we have not effectively rewritten our social contract, then I do believe that, we, that the, defining, the defining character of the decade will be rage. Before we get to what you mean by rage, um, so in other words, you see the rage outcome, if I can call it that, as the default scenario. It's not a scenario we have to actively choose. If we do nothing, that's the path we're on. Yes. Okay, so rage is in the title. Um, I, I assume with an intentionally double meaning? Yes. So it's funny, you know, when we... And, and usually when I say the word raging, hmm. um, you know, turning it into its turning it into its verb rather than its noun um, or it's a, or as an adjective. Um, it's funny how people respond to that word usually depends on demographics. Hmm. Um, so like my 19 year old son thinks raging is an implicit positive. Like it's a great <laughs> it's, like it's a great it's a great party. Right. The party's raging. Um but for others, it's an implicit negative. And so it is, it, it is very much, uh, it, it has a dual connotations by design, by intent. Might also be regional variations. We use raging in the form of party um, quite a lot in the north of England. I was raging last night, mate. That's, yeah. neither, that's neither, neither here nor there. Um, okay, what does that mean or what does that look like? What, what is... If the 2030s are going to be a decade of rage, um, yeah, what does that look like? So we've gotten some pretty vivid pictures lately. Um, you know, think, go back to, go back to June 6th, I mean, June 6th, January 6th. Mm -hmm. That's what it, that's, I mean, that is its caricature. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and one thing I'd be sh sure to do is, is make the point that it's not, just the right or just the left. And in fact, there are certain words that are banned from the text. Hmm. You know, the, among the words that don't appear in the book, the words Trump, Obama, hmm. Biden, Clinton, Boris Johnson, none of those names appear in the book because they're so triggering. And I think that smart people become stupid uh, hmm. as soon as you as soon as you take some of these issues. And then it's always perfectly reasonable to talk about the contemporary political context, and of course, these are the moment's protagonists. But if you really want to elevate, you really want to get at the conditions that enable uh, these people for both good and ill to be protagonists um, in the economy and in life right now, I think you have to elevate a little bit. So the rage, what does rage look like? 
Um, if you think, for example, uh, of what we saw with the uprising at the United States Capitol, that's an example. If you think about the Gilets Jaunes, the, um, the Yellow Vest protest movements, uh, wrecking the Champs-Élysées and spray-painting the Arc de Triomphe, that's what it looks like. If you think about the Black Lives Movement protests, that's what it looks like. Um, so it doesn't have to map to a specific ideology, but I think what we've seen in a lot of these protest movements is rage. And what's interesting to me is that where even as recently as six or seven years ago, that those would have really been at the political periphery, I do believe that the size of those movements, uh, whether they're manifesting themselves in street protests or not, are quite large. You know, when I think of the 70, I think it's 77 million people who voted for Donald Trump, 70 some million, I believe that 20 million are fully radicalized, um, you know, and are deeply sympathetic, for example, with, you know, the bare chested face painted guy wearing, you know, Norse horns storming the Capitol and ripping through the Speaker of the House's office. Well, so that's, that's what the that's rage about looks what like. what polling would suggest. I think we sometimes don't credit people with believing what they're telling us they believe in those I, cases. I, I think you're, I, so I think, I think you're right. And, and I do think that there is, I, I think there are very wide differences country to country, state to state, mm -hmm. even in the democratic West the degree to which there is likely to be violence mm. or not, you know, the degree to which you are going to see you know, a rise of strongman authoritarianism or not. I mean, I think it's worth, you know, pointing to the past moments of inflection. There is always amidst the disorder, amidst the rage. It's a great time to be, it's a great time to be an authoritarian. Mm. You know, in the early 1930s, it was a great time. It was a great time for the Hitlers and Mussolinis to emerge. Uh, after the 1840s, there was a reassertion of authoritarianism. Now, you know, people point quite often to, you know, Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin. But we've got Erdogan, Duterte, Bolsonaro. I mean, there are many, many examples. Orban. Of, demo of democratic states democratically electing authoritarians. Okay, I, I have a challenge for this, but let me just get really clear about the argument first. So you're drawing a commonality, which is rage, between a number of reasonably disparate groups, from the January 6th uprising to the Gilets Jaunes to um, uh, Black Lives Matter, um, I guess you could possibly... There's a whole load you could also put in there. Um, there's certainly a commonality to be drawn in terms of um, the emotions that they express and the methods of political engagement. Are you going a step further and saying there's a commonality in the causes of those movements or the causes of those um, um, forms of political expression? So... You know, concretely, you you seem to be um, putting um, a breakdown in the social contract, which you're defining in quite heavily economic terms, at the root of a lot of this. Do you see that as common to say both Black Lives Matter and the the um, capital insurrection? Yes. So, and and let me just try to let me identify let me try to identify the common thread. So, okay. if you think of it, in within the Black Lives. Black Lives Matter movement um, and some of the underlying 
some of the underlying dynamics that animate it, for example, you know, the discussion around reparations and what have you. What you have in all of these cases, and certainly with the Gilets jaunes, are conditions of econo- of persistent economic distress or stagnation. Um, so let's go back to, I think I'm young. I'm 49 years old. I'm older than you, but I'm young. <laughs> if we go back to just when I was uh, in nine years old, 40 years ago, just in the United States, if the, le- if the, if the level of inequality had remained constant over the last 40 years, it would mean that 50 trillion, trillion with a T, dollars would have gone to workers making below the 90th percentile. That means $1,100 per worker per month. That's enormous. And some of what binds together the people in West Baltimore mm-hmm. and West Virginia, where I'm from, so think of you know, West Baltimore as sort of the cradle of Black Lives Matter and West Virginia, the cradle of sympathy for the January 6th movement, they both are coming from positions of economic distress. Hmm. And what's really tragic is, as somebody who was born and raised in West Virginia but now lives in Baltimore, is there's so much more that unifies those communities in terms of their economic interests than separates them. But they're separated ultimately by a series of non economic factors, Hmm. which are dominantly cultural. Mm -hmm. So the reason why they aren't marching together Hmm. is because of it, because they've drawn completely different conclusions about what the solution to these problems are. Um, And they end up in quite different, quite different places politically, though Hmm. I would argue, um, again, as somebody who was born and raised in the coal filled hills of West Virginia, um, I do believe that the people in the January 6th protests, not of all of whom are, you know, products of economic distress, but all of whom I would argue are responding to, all of whom are coming from communities that have been stagnant uh, over decades, and all of whom emerge out of communities that respect that reflect the cultural character of this sort of emasculated working class. Uh, Amer- uh, the, the the emasculated emasculated um, white American working class. Um, I do believe that that community has been substantially more manipulated by others, whereas on the political left, it's much more a recognition of, oh my God, we've been getting screwed for a very long time. And uh, so I, I believe that one community is actually getting access to better data and solutions and being being more assertive about it, whereas others are being substantially more manipulated. So, you know, when I go home and visit my parents in West Virginia, if I'm sidling, if, if I'm at a, if I'm on a bar stool and I've got a beer or two in my belly and I talk to the guy beside me and don't give him any clues to who I am or what I think, and I ask him a series of questions and don't invoke words like Obama or Trump, What's interesting is he will profess, he will he will say he is very far right wing. He loves Donald Trump or he loves far right politics. But what he's actually expressing economically are the economics that you know are, are almost more Nordic. Um, they're much more. They, they, the truth is that their economics are much more AOC, if they're being honest about it, than they are 
tax breaks for billionaires, but they live in a news and information environment that turns them inside out, that manipulates them. Okay. Um, so I can imagine two challenges to that. One to the overall description of movements, the other to your characterization of the gentleman on the barstool in um, West Virginia. Let's let's do the gentleman on the barstool in West Virginia first, because that one's simpler. Um, and I don't know if you have a particular gentleman in mind, but um, I used to live well, on... I, I lived in West Virginia for 21 years, so there's a state full of these gentlemen on these barstools, and I know them well. I, I, I lived with them for 21 years, so we don't have to give them a name. There's one in yeah. every bar. There are 10 in every bar. Yeah, I not quite that long, but I spent many years living on Staten Island, which isn't quite West Virginia, but it's very, very Trumpy. Um, it, it's Trumpy, but it's different. It's different. It's definitely different. Um, okay, here's my sort of challenge about that guy. Um, and I can bring this back to movements, but I think my challenge is that there are a reasonable segment, if you believe polling, it's anywhere from, God knows, 20 to 60% of the Republican electorate or the Republican primary electorate, who will support, say, a higher minimum wage or more power for unions or something like that. It depends on the issue, um, but it's there. I think the narrative can become one of misleading people. In other words, people are with us, as I'm just using broadly the left, they're with us on economics, but they get misled by conspiracy theories and inaccurate news reporting and so on. I'm not saying any specifics of that story are true are, are untrue. I think I just characterize it a little differently. I think people have issues that they care about and they prioritize certain issues over others. And for that particular segment, call it people in the top left quadrant, people who are culturally right but economically left, something you pretty consistently see and this is true for the UK as well, increasingly it's true everywhere, is that people prioritise their cultural conservatism over a more economic, egalitarian set of preferences. And one thing I'd want to say is, it's not, we might think it's wrong or even immoral, but it's not necessarily an irrational move on their part. They have preferences regarding immigration, regarding social diversity, regarding changing gender norms, acceptance of LGBT people, so on and so forth. And they vote based on those issues. And I've done door-to-door -door canvases of Republicans in upstate New York. And yeah, you can get them on issues if you don't, like you say, if you don't mention politicians' names. Um, but you, you can get them to sign a petition on that issue, but you won't get them to vote on it. Because when they vote, they're voting on the issues which are most important to them, which aren't economics. I don't know. That would be my challenge to the description of the gentleman on the bar stool. No, I think that I think there are aspects of that that I agree with. But you know, if you just let's let's localize things further. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole. But if you are giving the 
voter on the bar stool in West Virginia. There, are, there is no diversity in West Virginia. There are no black people. There are no brown people. There are no Mexicans. There are no Muslims. It is uniformly white and Christian. Okay. Um, so when they are voting on a non-national level, let's say they're voting at the local level, and they can vote between two good old boys, um, one of whom is culturally conservative, one is cu- one of whom is culturally conservative and economically conservative, one of whom is culturally conservative and economically liberal. They're still likely, more likely to vote for the culturally conservative and economically conservative hmm. candidate because I do believe they are misled to believe by Fox News, by right wing radio and other such things that they are beneficiaries of right wing economic doctrine. So if you are knocking at their door and you are giving them choices or if I am sitting at the bar stool beside them hmm. and you know, playing out scenarios. Hey, do you believe that people making over a billion dollars a year should pay an additional 5% in taxes and in so doing lower your taxes X amount? Mm-hmm. The answer is going to be yes. But that's not how politics plays out. Mm-hmm. And in reality, if you if I were to sit on that bar stool in West Virginia with the gentleman beside me, and I would say, what do you think, what did you think of Donald Trump's tax cuts? He would say that I bet he would believe that he got one of those tax cuts. When in fact he didn't, I did, I did because I fit the economic. I'm in the I'm in the economic graph hmm. that benefited from both the corporate tax cuts, the capital gains tax cuts, and the redu- reduced uh, and the reduced taxes on top earners. Whereas he, as a working class or middle class earner, did not get a tax cut. But I genuinely believe he thinks he got a tax cut. So there's there's a lot of nuance to this and a lot of complexity to this. But I do think that misinformation, disinformation, people acting irrationally against their own interests is is substantial in this. When I think, for example, like to bring it back to Biden's infrastructure investments, Mm. nobody would benefit more from Biden's infrastructure investments than people in the middle of America in West Virginia. They would benefit substantially from those investments, yet 100% of the representatives in Congress will vote against them. Mm. They are not going to pay any additional taxes. Like if taxes get raised, my taxes are getting raised. Their Mm. taxes aren't getting raised. Um, The infrastructure that's going to be built is going to be built in their communities, not in mine. Um, So there is, you know, I just... One thing that is true now that that I don't believe was true 10 years ago is the degree to which the news and information environment has created separate realities in different communities, including, sadly, the community where I grew up and where my parents still live. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing, we've been talking about this. Again, we, I'm just talking broadly, everyone from the centre through to the left. We've been talking about this for a while since, was the book called What's the Matter with Kansas, which I always felt was a bit of an unfortunate Mm. title. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, and I feel like just as a note about the discourse, when we, this is one of those issues where in intra-left discussions, I think we're quite prone to talk past each other sometimes and get, I don't know, locked into particular narratives that might be more reconcilable than sometimes we get into. I mean, look, obviously, um... Obviously, just straight misinformation is playing a pretty big role. I think the second challenge 
I think I can imagine a lot of people saying something like this. If you look at what's what what's the chain of causality that leads to um, a, some of the largest protests we've ever seen with Black Lives Matter, or um, on the other side, um, some of the most overt acts of political violence we've seen in quite some time with the, the, the Capitol protest. I think a lot of people would want to push back and say those chains of causality are so different that you can't really unify them. The economics certainly plays a role with the Black Lives and economic inequality and inequality of opportunity and so on. That definitely feeds into a sense of grievance, legitimate grievance, for which, say, a particular police shooting might be the spark that lights it up. Um, I think a lot of people would challenge that economic inequality has been a causal driver for, say, the the capital insurrection. I mean, it's not it's it's not inequality. So it is inequality, but they wouldn't say inequality. Mm-hmm. If you listen to Trump's rhetoric, um, it is strongly rooted in the rhetoric of economic justice. Drain the swamp. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what he is. He is. You know he, he he uses what's you know in political theory called palingenesis. It's the evocation of a utopian past that either did or did not exist before. Yes. Just like just like you know Mussolini did with Ro- yeah. Rome will rise again. And when he says we're going to make America great again, it has an explicitly, yes, cultural, but also economic dimension to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is that um, now emasculated mm-hmm. working class 50-year-old white man who imagines the America of the, uh, the Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy eras. He's mm-hmm. sitting at the head of his table after a day's work. Mm-hmm. He's got his dinner at six o'clock. He's watching the news at six thirty. He goes bowling at seven o'clock. He's on, and he is he is a white man in the world's most powerful country, and he is at the, he is at the top of the world. That guy is now economically and culturally emasculated. Trump understands that better than anybody. So the causality for Black Lives Matter and the January 6th protests, of course, they are different. But there are but there is a lot that actually propels both of them, which is rooted in economic grievance. But the way in which that expresses itself is wildly different and arrived at very differently. Okay, I'll I'll make one point, but then we'll 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 move on because this could become the entire uh, entire conversation. I think what a lot of people would want to say to that, I think probably what I would want to say is first a descriptive observation that many of the people who are most invested in Trump are economically reasonably affluent. I mean, there was a lot of small business owners in the January sixth uprising. I think a, a few of them took private planes to be there. Um, and a lot of his support, I remember the big boat rallies for Trump, is sort of like small business owners who, yeah, might face some economic uncertainty, um, but are not economically desperate or even economically insecure, yet nonetheless are very radicalised to the point where they're willing to commit real acts of political violence. Um, I think the way I've heard it put is we often talk about um, the, we talk about this as if you have 
economic grievances that are being expressed and understood through racialized or gendered language. Um, so like you say, they interpret it another way. I almost, I would suggest that the model of understanding it is the opposite, that often you have grievances about race or about gender. You used the word emasculated a number of times. You have that feeling, and that feeling gets expressed through economic language, i.e. it's these trade deals, read foreigners, or Jews perhaps, or um, it's the criminals, read black people. But the reason you see quite a diversity of economic status amongst the right-wing radicalized is that the, 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 the driving animus isn't economic, it's cultural. And that animus gets then expressed in economic terms rather than the other way around. Um, anyway, that's the challenge. Yeah. So I think we just see this differently. So, you know, I think that, you know, the, the best way to, I think the best way to draw out the economic grievance hmm. is with its culture is to make it cultural, hmm. um, is to make an issue cultural. But I think that if you look at America's heartland, you know, if you look at why so much of Donald Trump's support comes from uh, farmers and from hmm. the farming communities, um, you know, the places among the places where he is most popular are the places that are most rural. Mm -hmm. um, there is very little that unifies uh, a, somebody who was given $200 million on his 21st century and lived on the Upper East Side of Manhattan mm -hmm. with very rural Americans living um you know, work, living and working on dairy farms. And the story that I tell in the Raging 2020s is about what happened economically through much of rural America, creating the conditions for radicalization, which I then believe that the Donald Trumps of the world knew how to manipulate using culture as a driver of it. Now, that's not to say there aren't cultural differences, but Barack Obama, Barack Hussein, black Barack Hussein Obama yeah. won a lot of the communities that are now strongholds of Donald Trump's support. I mean, I ran tech and media policy for Obama's first presidential yeah. campaign, and he did great. And a lot, he, we won Iowa. Um, Iowa is not a diverse state. Uh, we, you know, we beat Hillary Clinton and John Edwards, um, you know, John Edwards from North Carolina, who had a much more po populist economic message than we did um, in many respects. He did great in Wisconsin and Minnesota. He won in landslides in those states where the economic character has changed substantially since. Michael Dukakis hmm. won West Virginia. Um, you know, I do. So I do believe that, I mean, where you and I see this a little bit differently is what is the driver? Is the driver culture? Is the driver economics? Certainly both are relevant. Both, I would argue, are protagonists in this argument. Um, but ultimately, I believe that what will divide, what will unify, what will bring together the West Virginia of my youth with the Baltimore of my adulthood are individuals or political movements that can show how each um, can benefit economically by working together. And the counter to that is God, guns, and gays. Mm. It's all of the cultural issues that very effectively drive a wedge into issues. 
And as you correctly pointed out earlier, in an, in an environment of full information, people will very often, if not a majority of time, choose culture hmm. um, over economic self-interest. Yeah. And it's, I don't think either of us are arguing ex exclusivity. Like, clearly it's no, a no, bit no. of both, right? No, they're, bo they're both, they are protagonists. Right. I, I think that, that issues of culture and issues of economics are both protagonists in this. In my own writing, hmm. um, I go much more deep on the economics of it. Hmm. Um, I think most of the books that have been written about this have been written focusing on the issue of culture. My grievance with that is it tends to be, um, you know, the Connecticut born and bred patrician parachuting into West Virginia for a few months. Um, yeah, that sort of and, reporting is and, uniformly and, and, awful. I, and, then, we can, yeah. and, then, and then coming out of it and saying, oh, my gosh, fellow patricians, um, I am now going to explain America's heartland to you. Now, mm. the best of the right, best writers don't do that, but too many do. Um, and so I guess that is my grievance with that is that there I do believe that the that too much of the cultural writing is is done by people who have spent enough time there, have spent just enough time there to be dangerous. Do you, yeah, I mean, um, th there's nothing more dangerous than a little bit of knowledge, right? Um, but do you, I mean, look, so you've worked at a high level on political campaigns and in politics, but do you think that a lot of what Obama pulled off in 08 and even in 012, in 2012, um, is replicatable in today's environment i mean i mean on the one hand i could say i, know, I interviewed sherrod brown who i'm sure you know a while back and he wins in ohio which is you know definitely drifting much more conservative but that seems to be the exception that proves the rule i don't i don't see iowa going for a democratic presidential candidate anytime again soon west virginia was reliably democratic until about 2000 like you mentioned we think about it now as this uber red state it didn't used to be um i guess when obama was in 08 a lot of those votes were still up for grabs they weren't republican partisan identified they, they are now republican partisan identified it's not just winning the votes it's winning them back which is much harder i don't know it just feels like iowa yeah. Ohio so I, are not in play in the way they so, were a decade ago. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I have two thoughts on this. So the first is that it depends on your time horizon. So over the short term, defined as the midterms next year in 2024, you're right. I agree. Yeah. Um, but I also believe, and, and whenever I hear a political, uh, you know, somebody in a campaign say, we've won this forever, or we've lost this forever, or a Democrat will never be elected here, or a Republican will never be elected there. That, for me, is a trigger that says, all right, well, things are about to change there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have it. There's a, a Democratic senator from, we, from Montana. We've had two Democratic senators from Montana. That would have been inconceivable 15 years ago. Um, this, you know, that, that, that happens far more frequently than we think. However, over the short term, I think the battlegrounds, the places that could go one place or another, are fairly few. I mean, we're talking about 10 or 12 states in the United States. The X factor in all of this is demographics. Mm -hmm. Every year, 
the composition of the electorate changes. And so the open question is, as every year a new batch of 18-year-olds come of age and, you know, another batch of people die, um, what is the force and effect of that uh, on the electoral map? The conventional wisdom right now and conventional wisdom rooted in data is that this would be a net benefit for the left mm-hmm. um, because younger voters, particularly on the cultural issues that we've discussed, younger voters tend to care much more about uh, issues regarding climate and environment. They tend to be, even if they're economically conservative, they tend to be much more open to the LGBTQ community and on those sets of issues. So the data right now suggests that that would be good for the left, but we'll see. We'll see, you know, until until we actually see those new voters changing the outcomes of elections, it's all hypothetical based on a theoretical based on a maybe. Did anything surprise you about the 2020 election? Was that where you thought that was going or anything that really stood out and you were like wouldn't have called that? Yeah, so I th- so I was surprised by how close it was. Um, and I told myself after the 2016 election, I wouldn't put any credence in polls again. Mm. Um, but like a drug addict who, you know, fell off the wa- you know, fell off the wagon, I went back to poll watching pretty mm. intensely. And if you just looked at the mathematics of polls, you would have said that Biden would have won in much more dramatic form that he did. And in retrospect, he did win. He won by four points. But in the Electoral College, it was closer than we thought it was going to be. Um, So it was closer than I would have suspected. I think that um, part of what I took away from that, and I remember thinking the same thing in 2010, when I was was even more surprised when um, Obama lost so much ground and lost control of Congress. it is that you really it's difficult to con- to trust the data mm-hmm. and that what people do when they pull the curtain behind them it really is entirely their own business and you know my own i recognize my the 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 effect of my own information and social bubble mm-hmm. so for all of the visits back to my parents in west virginia and however much time i might spend on a bar stool talking to the guy beside me the simple fact of the matter is that I'm in, uh, I'm in social and professional circles that are non-representative of the people who elect our president, um, and so that then that that helped throw me off a bit as well. Has anything about Biden's approach to governance surprised you? A lot of people have said they're surprised by sort of quote unquote how big he's willing to go. My feeling was that was reasonably reliably signaled throughout the campaign, and perhaps that's just a symptom of Biden coming out of a primary with a lot of people to his left, but that the Democrats... Well, I'll just let you go. Has anything about his approach to governance surprised you? Yes and no. Um, I'll say that I think he did give good signals going into government that he was not going to be the 30, 40 year veteran of Washington who was fairly centrist and incrementalist. Mm. I think he clearly got the signal that he needed to be bold, particularly on on economic policy. If anything surprised me, it's been the degree to which he has built a team that is 
aggressive on issues of antitrust. Yeah. Um, what hasn't happened yet, so if you look at it, it's sort of a dream team mm-hmm. for those who have a problem with big tech, those who believe in non-incremental, but rather, you know, taking a Brandeisian as opposed to Borkian approach to antitrust. We haven't actually seen the results of that yet. Mm-hmm. So we've seen the appointments. They've got the government badges on. You know, I, I, I know many of them, and I'm sure they're working very hard. Um, we're waiting to see what would happen, what will happen right now. But at least in my time, and, you know, I worked, you know, for four years, you know, with some fairly frequent interaction with, with, with then Vice President Biden, I didn't hear anything from him that predicted um, this approach to antitrust. He has always not had a, he's, he's always disliked, I will say, Silicon Valley, so a lot of this is rooted in Silicon Valley. So that's not a surprise. But I am surprised that at least in terms of appointments, he's made such a priority of antitrust. And I think I, like many other people, are now waiting to see what the results of that will be. Is it it's so interesting you mention antitrust? And let's we're coming up on the hour, so let's close with this. But um, because there's something... So as political philosophy, like... One of the things that's really interested me is a sort of quite subtle change in values that I've seen from the Democratic Party um, that hasn't really been communicated, I think, in public-facing rhetoric that much. But a lot of people talk about the sort of rise of the Democratic Socialist left, Bernie Sanders and, and so on, and certainly that faction within the party has increased in prominence. No one's, I don't think anyone disputes that. But also, I think just like mainline progressive liberalism has shifted. And okay, here's the shift, and here's why I think it's really interesting you said um, antitrust, is we've gone from thinking about inequalities of opportunity or inequalities of wealth, or well, we still think about those, but we've, we're also thinking a lot more about inequalities of power and the problems that come from, like, concentrations of unregulated power. And the problem with Facebook isn't exactly that it's a traditional monopoly or that it's denying anyone equality of opportunity or so on. The problem is they're very, very powerful, and what would happen if they, if, I say if, they decided to use that power maliciously? And you've almost got, never quite stated, but something almost like a Republican conception of freedom, a small-r Republican meaning like freedom as non-domination, not being subject to arbitrary and unaccountable power. And that feels kind of new to me, or at least a much greater degree of emphasis is going towards that value set than it was or that values framework than it was of the liberalism even of 10 years ago. You've been at the heart of all of it. Do you think that there's anything to that description? I do. And look, I mean, it's a big, it's a key thesis within my book, The Raging 2020s. That in I was going to say, your, your, yeah. your book is, yeah. is a very, very good example of it. But it's not, it's not just you. No, no, no. Um, th- this is not uniquely my. This is not uniquely my observation. No, I mean one of the key theses is that in many respects we're more governed by companies than we are by governments. Mm. And you know when the United States government does not raise the the federal minimum wage in 13 years, then the de facto the the, the institutions that de facto govern what the minimum wage 
is are uh, Walmart and Amazon. Hmm. Um, but, but, but to your point, particularly with a focus on tech, I do believe that there is a concern not about, again, looking at this sort of borky and technical definition of market mm. concentration, but thought of merely in terms of power, mm. um, is a focus on the, the potential and reality of, mal of malignant outcome, malignant intent, mal malignant outcomes, when you do have that much power concentrated in one place. And what we now see, I mean, there was a day earlier this week when Elon Musk's net worth went up $36 billion <laughs> yeah. in one day. Hmm. And so the other dimension of this, so part of it is the power of the firm. Hmm. You know, people are asking the question, does you know, company X have too much power. Hmm. But when we see individuals with net worths now going over $100 billion, people are talking about Elon Musk potentially becoming the world's first trillionaire. One of the worries there is not, it's not so much, it is about inequality, but I think the greater fear is the idea of so much economic power being, being uh, amassing in one individual. Mm. Um, so that's another aspect of this. And there are, you know, look, we can identify them. There are, you know, somewhere between 30 and 50 people in the United States right now um, who, because of their economic power, have the ability to shape our politics, have the ability to shape our governance in far more consequential ways than has been the case since you know, Theodore Roosevelt cracked down um, on trusts and on corporate power uh, a little more than 100 years ago. Is this, because in my field, political philosophy, there's been a bunch of political philosophers going back to Quentin Skinner and Philip Pettit and so on, really arguing for um, a shift in liberalism away from merely looking at, say, non-constraint or non-interference towards looking at domination, i.e. who really has the power that you can't challenge. And it's always, they've always presented it as, well, an academic thing. Um, but is this, is this going to be, I might be setting you up for a bit of a softball here, but is this going to be the direction of liberalism in the 21st century? Is something a bit like that, a, a, an account of freedom that looks very closely at who has power and how it's constrained? Well, if we don't, if we don't, then we will evolve into a more Mad Max-like state. <laughs> if we don't, I mean, and there are, you know, there's a, a, a good friend of mine um, who I interview a few times, who, who makes a few appearances in the Raging 2020s, um, a law professor from Columbia University now working at the White House named Tim Wu. Hmm. And Tim is a very, very smart guy um, who has thought a lot about this. And it's interesting for me to have somebody in a position of power in the West Wing of the White House hmm. with this view, who I think sees it as his job hmm. um, to address this. And this is why I made the point I did earlier about now, I, I'm, I'm observing to see what actually happens now. Hmm. Um, Yes. Yeah, Tim Wu was Zephyr Teachow's running mate when she went for New York governor, wasn't he? He was. Zephyr's always had that very Republican, I would say, classically Republican account of what government is there to do. It's not. It's there to not just, not merely 
say, oh, let's make sure we take a bit of money from the wealthy and give it to the poor. It's there for that. But it's also there to make sure everyone has a certain amount of power and no one has too much. That's right. And so Tim, who Tim Wu, who was her running mate, author of The Master Switch and other things, um, he's in the White House. He's mm. got a big job. So now what I want to see is can Tim, can Lena Khan, can these other people who have been brought into governor, what can they accomplish? Mm. What What is possible when you have the formal levers of the power of the federal government in your hands. I know from my own time in government, you can do a hell of a lot with it. Um, government, it, government is a very powerful instrument, but it's very difficult. Um, it's like steering a battleship. It's very hard to steer those battleships. And so I'm, I'm, I'm. So much of what I write about in the raging 2020s, ultimately, the state has to assert has to assert itself in many of these domains, because it's not going to come, change is not just going to come from corporations and from citizens. The state has to assert itself. I know some of the people who have the inclination, the intelligence, and the resources to assert themselves are now trying to do so. I'm a, I'll be a keen observer of whether they're successful or not. Do you think they should lead with Final Final? Do you think they should lead with this publicly more? Because all of the media focus, and legitimately it's an important thing, has been on the infrastructure bill. Should we be talking about antitrust publicly in our campaigns? Should we be linking it to values like the limitation of power and freedom as non-domination? Is that, I don't know, you've worked on higher levels campaigns than me, is that something we should lead with in the midterms or 2024? I don't think they can lead with it in either the midterms or in 2024 unless they've done something. Right. So that's the, you know, once you actually get the job, you are responsible for the outcomes. I mean, I'm, I split my time between the United States and Italy. And one of the things that I've sort of bemused watching the past few years in Italy is there was a protest, a political protest movement called Cinque Stelle, five stars, mm. that grew really strong. Um, they, you know, the prime minister, you know, they, they literally exploded in, in support. The prime minister was from five stars. The mayors of lots of these cities, including Rome, was from five stars. But once they actually won, they were responsible for delivering. And their rhetoric didn't work when they actually had the power. Mm. So they got thrashed in this last election because the because things that worked in... Um, electioneering do not work if you actually have the keys to the car. Mm -hmm. So I think the answer to your question is yes, if they do something and then use that as a basis for look what we do when we have power. Mm -hmm. But if they try to do that without having actually produced an outcome, I think it'll sound like nonsense. It'll sound mm -hmm. like rhetoric. Okay. That's interesting, thanks. Um, all right, anything you want to close with and anywhere you want to direct listeners? Um, you've, we've mentioned your book, but um, that or a Twitter page, anything like that, anywhere you'd like to send people. No, look, I, 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 look if people want to go a little bit deeper on this, they can go to alecross.com. Mm -hmm. um, you know, look, I appreciate the opportunity to have spent some time talking with you today and mm -hmm. you know it's very nice having these kinds of elevated <laughs> discussions where we can where we can go deep on topics and go go well below the surface level no super appreciated having you on cheers man cheers thank you <laughs>